Welcome to this week's episode of the Linguali podcast. I'm joined today by Evandro Magellan. Evandro is a writer, senior United Nations staff and conference interpreter. He is also a TED author, professor and former chief interpreter of the International Telecommunication Union. On top of this, he is a coach and mentor to language professionals and the go-to person on anything to do with remote interpretation. You have a very interesting and varied background. Talk me through how you've got to this point in your career. Well, thank you very much, Sophie. First off, uh, thanks for having me. Yes, I'd be delighted to do that. Uh, indeed, I have played many different roles in my life. My first um, um, graduation, if you will, my first experience background is that of a physical education teacher. So I graduated from the University of Brazil in 1984 and got busy you know, teaching people how to swim and, and things like that. I was an athlete back then. I was running, doing triathlons, stuff like that. And then, out of happenstance, a book came to my hands on uh, triathlon, a sport that I was doing back then, and I decided to translate it. So I went around knocking on doors, trying to get people to, to trust that I would be able to do a good job. Although my English back then was a bit patchy, yeah, I didn't realize that back then, I guess. So eventually, uh, the University of Brasilia Press, and again, through a very convoluted series of events, allowed me to to do a test, liked it, and they decided to publish the book. So that's how I became a translator. And then I joined the Brazilian parliament, the House of Representatives in Brazil. And again, through a series of odd circumstances, came to be at the office of the president and was one day used as an interpreter for lack of anybody else lying around that could do the job. And that's how I became an interpreter. So it was completely a happenstance. Uh, so to speak. And then at a point, I created my own agency, started doing translations and interpretation. And soon thereafter, I was training interpreters. And not too long after that, I decided to, well, I wrote a book about interpreting and so on. And at a point, I decided to get a, a degree after I had been interpreting for like 15 years and went to the United States and then ended up in, in Geneva. Can you tell me a little bit about your current role with the International Telecommunication Union? Sure. I joined ITU in 2010, in September of 2010, as their chief interpreter. I was before that in Washington, D.C., working as a freelance interpreter for the organizations in the area. And um, at, at that point, I had three kids that I wanted to get through school and so on. I was 45, 40 seven. So I decided it was a good time to try and settle maybe, get a get a steady job, you know, to help me uh, pay for my, you know, my children's education and so on. And then I, I, I was busy applying everywhere. One of the organizations for which I applied was ITU. And one of my references, when I told her that I had applied not just to, to the ITU, but also specifically to ITU, she told me, I to you, Geneva? I said, yes. Well, she said, well, forget about it. Zero chance. I said, why? Well, I know many colleagues from Geneva. They would like to have that job. They speak French. You don't. By the, by, you know, back in the day, I didn't speak French. And you've never worked in Geneva, so forget about that. And I totally forgot about that. To make a long story short, <clears throat> soon thereafter, I was contacted and interviewed. And about two, they gave me like two or three weeks to then come to Geneva with my family because they had a, a large conference coming up. 
So that's how, and I of course hopped uh, on the opportunity and that's how I joined the organization. Is the ITU a particularly tech savvy agency? ITU can be can be very tech savvy to the extent that it is the United Nations agency responsible for the ICTs. So it is our job to standardize every piece of equipment that has to do with telecom and also uh, make sure that telecommunications develop well, particularly in the in the third world countries and so on. And radio communications is also another huge aspect of ITU. <clears throat> and the agency gets to, to discipline the use of spectrum and so on. So it is a very technology-oriented um, agency. And <clears throat> because of that particular uniqueness or, or that um, characteristic, if you will, Many people within the UN system point to us or turn to us for developments in the realm of technology. So we're pushed into developing things such as remote participation, remote interpretation. So we are, it's not that we are on the forefront of those things because we meant to be necessarily, but because everybody else turns to us when it comes to it. So we are more or less pushed up front and we have to deal with those things um, earlier than anybody else. So um, to make a long story short, yes, I would say that because of all those circumstances, ITU has come to be a very tax-heavy organization, yes. How easy was it for you to get interpreters on board with remote participation? Not easy. Um, it took me about four years, I would say, from the moment I got involved to the point that it became really a stable of our meetings, as is the case currently. But in ITU, it was and still is what we call remote participation, not remote uh, interpretation, in that the interpreters are in the meeting. They are in the room along with the delegates. So the interpreters are in their booths servicing a physical meeting in front of them. Only delegates who could not make it to Geneva can at any point chime in from their home offices, say in Burkina Faso or Brazil or Cuba, whatever the place is in whatever language they choose. So somebody sitting in Spain who could not be present in Geneva now has a system whereby that person can haze her hand and be recognized and be given the floor and then speak in Spanish. Now for the interpreters, it comes into the, their consoles as um, an audio feed like any other. So for them, it's business as usual. The only difference being that that is the person they don't get to see the face of as long as the audio is good, though, it is like interpreting for a delegate who is maybe in a, in a corner of uh, the hall that you don't get to see. And so it should not be, you know, shouldn't pose particular problems. The issue, of course, is that because the person is calling from afar and going through the telephony system and so on, at times the quality of the lines deteriorate fast and without prior notice. So more than get the interpreters to buy into you know, the technology itself and how to, to adapt to the sound quality and so on, what I had to do with the help of the interpreters was develop a set of procedures to make sure that we could still continue to try and test without having any problem reflect negatively on the reputation of interpreters. And that was a very extensive uh, job because we had to, and I mean, it was a system of many trial and error, uh, trial and errors. And 
I had to consult with the interpreters at every step of the way. And of course, they, they kept bringing up um, a number of reasons for which they should not be doing that. And we had to clear many of those hurdles with uh, our constituents, the delegates. I'll give you one example. Uh, one of the barriers that we had was a perception that the delegates had that uh, the quality that they were getting uh, from someone calling, say, from Africa was good enough because they they could understand everything that the person was trying to say. They could get the gist of it. They could continue to follow uh, the meeting. And they didn't realize that good quality for them is not good enough quality for the interpreters. So it took a lot of meetings and a lot of awareness campaigns to actually make them understand that you can only sit there and get the gist of it as a delegate, but the interpreter doesn't have that luxury. That person, he or she, has to get every piece, every word, every nuance, every, every breath, sometimes the intonation. So in making them understand that was a bit rough in the beginning. They, again, they, they thought that the interpreters were just dragging their feet and resisting for, for the sake of resistance. So this is, uh, this is what really uh, took most of our time. Not developing the technology itself, that was the job of my IT colleagues, and, and they're very skilled in that, but getting the interpreters to feel comfortable to the point that they can try and not have it reflect negatively on them. And I'm sure that makes all the difference. Absolutely, because uh, what we do now is, for example, before the meeting starts, the chairman reads a disclaimer saying that ITU is piloting this experience. It's still a pilot. Our interpreters are the best in the industry. and But sometimes if the line of the quality is not good enough, they may feel hindered in their ability to do a stellar job. And by the way, good quality for an interpreter Good, I'm sorry, good, good quality for a delegate is sometimes not good enough for the interpreter. So if they, at a, at a given point in time, have to suspend the interpretation, we'll go to a plan B and a plan C and so on, and the interpreters are not to blame. So that's pretty much, in, in a nutshell, uh, the disclaimer. And, but the, and the interpreters get to interpret that in their respective language. So they feel, okay, they got my back. Right, And now once that barrier is out of the way and they feel protected, then they go the extra mile and they, they do whatever it takes to actually get, uh, get the interventions in. And there's also a system whereby if there's any problem, because we screen the lines in advance. So you know, somebody who's supposed to do uh, remote participation is asked to call in advance, like 10, 15 minutes before, and we screen the line to see if the line is of good enough quality. Then again, the line may deteriorate once the call is in progress, when the person is actually taking the floor. If that happens, the chief interpreter or the team leader who was present at the screening of the line has the final say as to whether that continues to be doable or not. And if the chief interpreter or the team leader says this is no longer doable, there's also a system uh, agreed upon where all interpreters suspend the interpretation at the same time. Because what happened in the past was the English interpretation team would throw in the towel because they could no longer deal with that. But the Spanish interpreters continued to struggle. And the delegates used that against us. They said, well, it's not good enough for, you know, quality is not good enough for the English booth. But, you know, the Spanish and the Russian both continue to find it good enough. So all these tricks and procedures and so on had to be fine-tuned and agreed in advance before we could move forward with 
you know, some comfort. As a senior advisor on, amongst other things, conference technology, which technologies do you believe have had the biggest impact on the work of conference interpreters? We could go back to, you know, the invention of the microphone and radio technology and many other things, but I'm going to go with the internet. The internet, which on the basis is, you could argue, is also, you know, telephone and radio technology. The internet is, at least in my experience in my lifetime, what has really made most of the difference because it affects the way we prepare for meetings. It affects, of course, the delivery platforms that we're now considering, the new forms of delivering interpretation. And it also has uh, changed drastically the way interpreters attract visibility to what they do, the way they interact with one another, the social media exposure, the discussions, the group discussions, the terminology exchanges. So it has made the world smaller and by extension, it has made the community of interpretation also uh, closer. Of course, you have people disagreeing more often, that is true, but you do have people getting together and joining efforts in ways that were not possible before. So if you think just just of email to you know to be very very basic about it back in 1996 7 when you know the internet was still in its infancy the notion that you could send someone a document that would be used for preparation way in advance before you even boarded the plane as a speaker to come speak at a conference that made all the difference also in in let alone in translation where you can now exchange files and so on and many other things that you and I have seen happen. So the internet, I guess, so far from what I've seen, is the major breakthrough. I believe you recently tested a remote interpretation pilot. Could you tell me about it and how it went? Absolutely. We partnered up with a company, a private company, and we, for the first time, decided to try the full remote interpretation, meaning that this time, Interpreters are sitting remotely. They were actually here in Geneva, in the booth, and servicing a meeting in Bangkok, ITU Telecom. And of course, it's a pilot, it's a test, and it was a can-fail exercise to the extent that interpreters are also in Bangkok servicing the meeting as usual. And we were just trying the other system on a few sessions that had not uh, that were not uh, liable or that were not supposed to be interpreted. So at the last minute, we advised the, the delegates that a new system was going to be tried. And if they wanted to try it, they could come prepared with their smartphones and earpieces, and we would be happy to get uh, their feedback. But the pilot involved interpreters sitting in Geneva, working through the consoles of the interpretation booths, as usual, and but only, of course, getting the audio feed brought to them over Wi-Fi uh, remotely. And it was two, uh, two sessions. The first one we did in that setup, and the second one we changed things a little bit to work specifically and exclusively just from uh, the platform provided by the company, so not using the consoles. And it was a very a very fruitful learning experience. Let me put it that way. It creates a lot of excitement when people first hear the interpreters. I mean, people in Bangkok, in the room, and they hear the interpreters through their smartphones. 
there's a lot of excitement and wow, this works, this is really nice, this is the future of interpretation. But then the, the, the voice wavers and the signal flickers and it trembles and the voice at times gets a bit metallic and then it, it gets hard to understand everything that's being said. And then you start to realize that, well, this is really interesting, this is promising, this is good, but it's still a work in progress. More needs to be done. And then we're in the infancy of testing it. Maybe the distance was a factor. We were talking about, you know, two cities uh, half a world apart. Maybe we're also working from a booth in ITU, one of the few booths in ITU where the equipment is analog instead of digital. So there are many variables to fine tune and adapt. But I'm convinced that it will work eventually. And I'm, I'm actually going to say that if, you know, if I'm playing the prophet here, that the next year is going to witness a huge, huge way of, of progress in that domain. So it was, as a test, very su successful because it allowed us to see many other things that we still need to work on. But as a technology, as a ready-made pet-a-porter kind of stuff, it's not there yet, but it will be very soon. Which technologies have you personally used when on an interpreting assignment? Well, internet, as I said, in, you know, in many different varieties, email and group discussions and, you know, cloud-based terminology, uh, glossaries and, and stuff like that. I've experimented extensively with remote interpretation myself, doing tests and whatnot and so on. But we, we tend to think of technologies as, you know, electronics and then and video and audio over, you know, the cloud and so on. But technology goes back as far as the, as the pen and paper. And this is technology too, right? So it's hard to say what really impacted uh, the profession or my, my personal experience. I had a great deal of fun dealing with the portable equipment, what we call the bidule. And, and unlike some other colleagues, I have no major resistance to those pieces of equipment. They do have their place under specific niche circumstances. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of that because I used to go on mission with the IMF very often to places like uh, Angola, Mozambique, the, the Lusophone African countries, and sometime in Principe, Cape Verde, and so on. And you go to places where there is, number one, sometimes not even uh, power. You're out in the field, and you have groups of eight seven, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten people, and where shushatage and, and whispering would be impossible. So it makes my life easier to the extent that I have the comfort of, you know, saving on my voice. I can speak at a very soft tone of voice. It allows me to, you know, with some training, uh, know what to do exactly to rely on good or reasonable incoming audio quality. So I, I was very quick to adapt to it and I I took it very seriously and then I went on to even distribute those products in Brazil I was for a number of years selling those um, uh, those pieces of equipment in Brazil and giving people advice on what to get and, and how to use them so I became sort of knowledgeable in them and that helped me you've described yourself as a remote interpreting advocate what do you say to those interpreters who see it as a threat to the profession? Well, there's so much I could say, frankly. 
But let me start by saying that they are right. It is a threat to the profession, not the profession as a whole. The profession is not going to to cease to exist, but it is a threat to the profession of conference interpreting as we know it, or as they know it, they have come to know it. And of course, I understand that there is a generation of interpreters who are nearing the end of their careers, who don't want to bother with those technology changes and so on. But I should also, of course, tell them that technology is not something that comes about because people want to make our lives difficult. And it's not being imposed on anyone. You, of course, have the option of never using technology. But as the world evolves, as new platforms come about and so on, it is a mistake not to try and adapt. You can continue to have your reservations, and I have my own. But it is unwise, I think, not to give it a try and not to try to adapt. Because if anybody is going to surf uh, the new wave, it is people who come to the beach earlier and who test the waters before the others and who you know go back and make adjustments and, and have a different bathing suit and have a different you know set of goggles and so on because it's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of the game. So you have to keep an open mind. You have to keep your reservations. You have to be very scientific in how you approach it, but you can't close the door. That would be unwise. I also tend to look at those colleagues as a little bit ungrateful because it's not the first time that a revolution occurs in our profession. Only the first time or the last big wave that we saw favored what we now call simultaneous conference interpreters. I'm talking, of course, about uh, the Nuremberg trials when we introduced for good a simul as opposed to consecutive that had been tried before, of course, in the Finley filing experiments in ILO, but uh, we continue to point to Nuremberg as the cradle of um, conference interpreting as we know it, because this is where you know the profession was really established in terms of shifts and, and manning strength and so on. And back then, if you if you go over the history, you know, celebrity interpreters like Andrew Kaminker and and others and so on were very doubtful to you know as to the merit of the new system and several others outright opposed by saying that it was impossible, it could not be done, it should not be tried, it would, it would dehumanize the profession, it would push the interpreters out of the room and into a, an aquarium, you know, a, a glassy booth and so on. So, and here we are, uh, 50 years later, enjoying the many perks and the efficiency that came about since those days. So we have to take it all with a with a grain of salt. And again, as I said, keep an open mind, keep your reservations, but go with the flow. Try it out because it's a very Zen approach to me, or a Kaizen approach, if you will, where you have to reinvent yourself before somebody else does, right? I think the quote is by Jack Welsh, control your destiny before somebody else comes and does that for you, right? I'd rather... Uh, you know, take the trouble of trying things I don't particularly like or, or whatever, you, you know, the, the feeling might be there. Uh, then just sit on my hands and have somebody else come and shape my future for me and, and you know, pull me in tall. Are all the effects of technology on interpreting positive? No. Um, I think as we move ahead, we will have to compensate for some of the added stress that will come, for example, with the 
with the additional exposure to screens, so the, the, the added screen times. We've seen that already in kids and people who have their faces in, people like me, by the way, who have their faces in, in their smartphones and tablets and, and smart devices all day. So there's strain on the eyes, there's strain on the mind, there's less um, uh, rest. The, the, the world, I mean, you're bombarded by information all the time. And also when you're in the booth trying to compensate for bad audio, that sometimes is the result of, say, remote interpretation. Of course, that uh, takes a toll on the interpreter. And I think part of the development will have to be compensating for those added stress by changing somewhat the, the procedures that we currently adopt, maybe reducing the shift duration, maybe introducing uh, I mean, a bigger number of interpreters in the mix. So not every effect is positive, but it brings about more, more efficiency, more productivity. And you can, if you can compensate that with measures that, that do make up for uh, you know, the added strain and the slight less of, say, quality of life, then it's, it's a good, uh, it's, you know, the, the mass adds up, I guess. You've also worked as a translator. How do you feel about the technological advances in that profession? I was a translator for many years. I've been a translator for longer, perhaps, than I have been an interpreter. But I got out of translating before those things really got a lot of traction. And when traders came uh, into the scene, and so when I gave it a try, and I also experimented with other technologies back then, I even sold traders in Brazil for some time. But I was I was already pretty much in, in love with interpreting at that point to the extent that I didn't really pay much attention to it. I recently wrote a, a blog post on that on the on the you know the cat tools and the new wave of cat tools that we have now the web based platforms that we see out there. And the way I felt back then, to be honest, was that the, the new technologies turned me into a line translator as opposed to a text translator. So I was down to translating lines one at a time, and I lost sight of the context, and that was very frustrating for me. Also, I had the misguided notion that I could out-type uh, a Tradis, uh, a suite, for example, because I was a very fast typer, and I was doing most mostly the same kinds of subjects day in and day out. So I was my productivity as far as producing the text was very high. I didn't have to consult dictionaries as I went because I was dealing with terminology that was very, very familiar to me. And But you know, later on, I realized that, of course, you can't beat um, a page of repeat text that Travis just gives you for free, right? But I was back in the day a bit stubborn as far as that technology. So I, I'm not the best person to give you, uh, you know, sensible advice on the merits of such technology, if you will. You're the author of the TED-Ed lesson, How Interpreters Juggle Two Languages at Once. What made you get involved with the project? Yeah, that was a fun project and one that got a lot of traction. It's nearing... 500,000 views, so half a million views. And it did a lot, I guess, to, to popularize uh, the profession and, and get people to, to understand a little bit of what happens backstage. My uh, How it happened was 
and my wife had gone online and nominated me as an educator just for fun. She's a fan of the TED Ed lessons and anybody can go online and nominate either yourself or themselves or somebody else as an, as an educator. And then the, the next step is you pitch an idea to them, right? So at a point they contacted me because my wife had given them an idea of you know, what my background was and so on and what I could talk about. And so basically she, she suggested that I complimented them, whatever she had written. At a point they contacted me and then you pitch an idea to them. And the idea I pitched them was, of course, uh, what was later the, the lesson. So ideas on how to make people familiar with how interpreters work, well, you know, how this has, how this magic happens and so on. And they were really interested. I mean, they had never thought about it and, and they were quite surprised. And then you write a script. They ask you to write a script. Then they, they critique the script a little bit. They check a few facts and so on. It's a very collaborative effort. And then they do everything else. They engage the designers, the, the animators, the, narrate, the, the narrator, and so on. And then it just sit back and, and watch. You have a say in everything. They run all the, the, the sketches to you, the designs, and so on. And you get to say, well, this, this would rather be shown that way instead of this way, and so on. And eventually, the piece comes to life. It takes about four to six months. In my case, it took six months. But it's very rewarding, very interesting. And I'm now on to my second TED Ed lesson, which will talk about not interpreting per se, but on the, the voyage of circumnavigation by Magellan and many, many uh, centuries ago, in which the interpreter, Magellan's interpreter, who was a slave that he had captured many years before in Malacca, played a very important, a key role, actually, in allowing him to communicate with the tribes and peoples of the of that region, the, the Indies. So it tells a little bit of the story of that interpreter and, and sheds new light on, on what really happened in that really interesting expedition. So I'm having fun now finalizing the script for that. There seems to be a lot of interest from people in trying to find out how an interpreter actually works. Yeah, absolutely. And I get a lot of, of emails, of course, from students and, and usually language uh, teachers also who never realized that there was so much effort behind it and so much work into it in terms of you know how seriously you have to take it, how, how long it takes for you to really become proficient and so on. And they, they constantly contact me in, in search of tips and things like that. I also, if you go to my YouTube channel, you're going to find also another video that I did on the mechanics or dynamics of relay uh, for interpreters who work at the UN. This is, again, something that most interpreters, even even seasoned conference interpreters, uh, ignore. They they don't know exactly what the requirements are if you want to come work for, for the UN, the six languages, and how you, you, you must have a quadrilingual English and French booth and so on. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but it's another interesting video that has gotten uh, some attention. You had been working as an interpreter for many years before taking a formal degree in interpreting. Why did you choose to finally enroll in a course? And did you still benefit from the training despite your advanced experience? 
Because after many years, like 15 years or so, and all the high-level assignments that I had done and, and so on, I was still deep down a physical education teacher, if you know, as far as my background went. So, and I had written a book about interpreting, the first one in, in Portuguese, actually, the, the very first in Brazil, and that too got a lot of attention. So, I was presenting myself as an authority in the field, and I started to feel funny for not having the right degree. So, I decided to put my career on hold. By the time I had already had my agency for like 17 years, but I decided to put my career on hold, went to Monterey and uh, to, to get the right degree. And it made all the difference, actually. How so? Because, I'm, you know, I thought I was just going for, to Monterey for a couple of years to enjoy the Pacific Ocean and, and the beautiful city of Monterey and just coast. And like they had nothing to really teach me. I was already a seasoned interpreter with a lot of high-level assignments under, under my belt and so on. And boy, was I wrong. I mean, first thing I learned, and I had to be very, very, very humble to even accept that I didn't know it in the beginning, was the long consac form and the symbols and so on. I mean, the notion that you, you can sit there for 10 minutes and take notes and then reconstruct a long segment of speech based on nothing but memory and a few pointers that you write for yourself. I mean, I had done a lot of CONSAC in the past, but it was, you know, the segment-by-segment CONSAC. And I was at odds with the long CONSAC when I came to Monterey. I was fighting with my professors and fighting with my colleagues. That is stupid. I'm not going to, you know, never going to use that and so on. And soon after graduation, when I started doing the, the State Department summits and bilaterals and so on, it came in handy. And, and I, was, I was very glad that I had gone to Monterey and gotten that degree. Also, it opened so many doors. Again, going to a, a, a renowned school is not just about the, the quality of the education you get, but it's the people you meet. So I was rubbing shoulders with everybody pretty much that has played in one way or another an important role in interpreting. The, the scholars, the, the visiting professors, uh, the colleagues who went on, of course, to later... Um, have some some very important positions in in key um, in, in key organizations, and and of course that gets you into the right circles. That gets you into I mean, it gets you where you need to be at the right time. If you understand what I mean, you can do that without preparation. You need to be prepared. You need to have content and a lot of hard work, you know, before that. But it does add to the to the whole timeliness of life, if, if you will. I believe you did some teaching at Monterey too? I did some teaching in Monterey right upon my graduation. That was actually an extension of the teaching I had done for many years in Brazil. So when I was graduated, uh, when I was graduating, I then pitched the idea to them to have the same kind of workshop done for Portuguese interpreters in Monterey. Back then, the institute didn't have a, pro a program in Portuguese, so it was uh, an interesting way of attracting people and also testing the market to see how much demand would later be for Portuguese. I also did a, a roundtable, organized a roundtable with people, atten attendees from Brazil and Canada and some other uh, institutions on the prospects of a future Portuguese program. So I'm, I'm in a way... Uh, proud to think 
maybe wrongly, but I'm still proud to think that part of the reason why we have a Portuguese program in Monterey today perhaps dates back to those early incipient efforts. So I later had, had a course also, uh, taught a course also in Brazilian, um, consecutive interpretation course in Brasilia under the banner of the Monterey Institute. So it was a very fruitful uh, cooperation. How big is the demand for Portuguese interpreters? It depends on where you were, of course. But Brazil, for many years, was on the rise, and it's uh, it's a country with a lot of potential. Other countries in Africa are also rich in oil and prospects. Take the example of Angola, São Tomé, in principle. Uh, you know, as small as those islands are, they're also uh, tapping into the, the potential of oil and and moving away from the subsistence agriculture efforts that they had. So, at a time, the the prospect for Portuguese was increasing. In, in very rapidly. And I was, for example, as a freelance interpreter in Washington, very, very busy. And it was a, a good time to be. You know, recent events have downplayed the importance of Brazil to a certain extent, but the language is bigger than the countries. So I I presume that particularly, particularly now that we have a Portuguese national at the helm at the United Nations, that Portuguese may perhaps gain, uh, I don't know, maybe a- another boost that may carry it, uh, you know, longer into into the future, let's see. But it's still a very important language. Thank you for speaking with me today. Well, thank you, Sophie, very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Very enjoyable. For those of you who are interested in updates on interpreting, training and technology, check out Evandro's blog, evandro.com, or follow him on Twitter. He is at Evandro Mag. You can also follow us on Twitter, we're at Linguali. Thank you for listening.